This morning, we will celebrate communion as a church family at the conclusion of the service. For now, I'd like you please to find your Bible, whether you turn it on or open it. If you're an electronic or a paper kind of person, we are in Luke chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible with you and you don't have it on your phone, that's okay. There should be a Bible near you. If you look around in the seats, maybe beneath you or certainly close to you, you will find a Bible. If you would open it, please, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. We have a rather interesting story filled with argument and questions, a nice shot of sarcasm to people who desperately needed to be spoken to sarcastically. Have you noticed that some people only respond to sarcasm? Jesus apparently knew that. We're walking along with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and when we come to this portion of His life, He's going to deal with people's expectations. You ever notice that things in life don't often work out exactly as we had expected? If we haven't met, and I met several new people on the, on the way in, I know I make some of you nervous by hanging out in the parking lot prior to the service. I do that at least a little bit as much as I love to worship with you. I try to have the best of both worlds and greet newcomers if we haven't met. My name's Bruce Garner, the senior pastor here at Crosspoint, um, one of the Garner Four. I have a wonderful wife of 25 years, two boys to whom I speak very kindly and respectfully now because they're both bigger and stronger than I am. <laughs> One of them in particular has become the man I once hoped I would be. Um, <laughs> he's the guy I was hoping to see in the mirror when I was in college. Never really worked out. And that's the way expectations work sometimes. We have a picture of what it's going to be, and then we deal with the reality, and it's quite different. I love, those of you who have been here for more than a week know that I love to tell stories. In fact, I collect them, and as God is my witness, I'm not a snoop or an eavesdropper, but I do sometimes hear the most astonishing things, sometimes from strangers, and some of my very favorite stories are what happens to people and how they react when they encounter reality versus what they expected. For instance, my Kids very occasionally play video games, but even I know in our home that there's a video game called Call of Duty. You guys familiar? It's a war game. It's probably done more for military recruitment than anybody, okay, sitting at a recruiter's desk. And I don't remember if it was one of their friends, but they told me about a kid who said, my brother joined the Navy because he thought it was going to be like Call of Duty, and he says it's not. No, not the slightest bit like the video game. And you know, that's life. And I'm friends with someone who actually is one of those guys. He's the, one of the guys that they make the movies about. And he said what he's discovered is the cooler it looks in the brochure, the more it stinks to do in real life. And isn't that just the way? We've all got the friend who's an expert on dating until they start dating themselves. And then the world falls apart. We all know the person who was an absolute expert on parenting and child raising until they had a child of their own. Maybe you've had the position where you knew what the boss should do, and then one day in their wisdom they decided you 
would be the boss, and you found out that it's a whole other deal. That's the way expectations work. And Luke chapter 7 is a story about Jesus and the expectations that people put on Him. So let me just ask you the important spiritual question, which is here. Is Jesus meeting your expectations? Is it turning out the way you thought it would? Because one of the things you've constantly heard in this church, in any church worthy of the name Christian, is that what we're doing here this morning is not ritual and religion. Religion invites you to adopt a code of some kind, and if you do well enough for long enough, God will accept you. That's the claim of every religion in the world, including people who don't understand truly what Jesus is talking about and have adopted a Christian form of religiosity. Religion invites you to be acquainted with the standard, which religion will explain to you, and then to climb your way up. You'll meet some of those people in today's story in Luke chapter 7. But what you've heard here is this isn't religion, it's relationship. And that's so much better and so much more genuine and so comforting, but there's a tougher side to relationship as well. And what is tough about it is relationships go both ways. And the greatest unmet expectations in our lives and the most heartbreaking sometimes come out of personal relationships. Anybody who's married knows that. I had a storybook picture. I literally have the pictures of the wedding, and I have a movie in my mind of what this relationship is going to be, and when I move into it, I discover not necessarily that it's bad, but it certainly is different. So let me ask you, is Jesus meeting your expectations? If you're really in a personal relationship with Jesus, it's between the two of you You can't help yourself. It's the way relationships work. You bring expectations to the relationship and bring expectations to Jesus. So let me ask you, how's it going? Is it better than what you expected? Or is it worse? In Luke chapter 7, we drop into the story of Jesus' life after he's performed some of the most incredible miracles of his ministry. He healed a dying man from a distance. He simply willed it to be so, and a man who was paralyzed and about to die was healed. Then he went along with a great crowd, apparently, into a little village called Nain, and on the way out they met a woman who was wailing, certainly, because she was following the burial plank on which was her only son, and she was already widowed. And Luke says, simply, Jesus had his heart moved with compassion. He hurt with her, and he spoke to that dead man, and he woke up. He literally didn't more than wake up. He came back from the dead and started speaking. And Luke says, Jesus brought that dead man alive now, brought he and his mother back together. In Luke chapter 7, I'm in verse 18, We're told this, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. Just so you know, this isn't John the disciple, this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is such an important figure that when Luke starts telling his gospel, you can look at this later, he doesn't even begin with the birth of Jesus, he begins with the birth of John. 
John himself was a walking miracle. John's birth was miraculous because he was born to elderly parents. And he's going to be such an important figure ahead of Jesus that, well, just wait till you hear what Jesus says about him. His own birth was miraculous, and John grew up in a home from the time he was a toddler. John himself realized he himself was a miracle because his parents should have been his grandparents or maybe his great-grandparents. John knew he was different and separate from the very beginning, and here's why. If you're a football person, John the Baptist was Jesus' lead blocker. He's the one who makes the way. He's the one that opens the hole. They call him John the Baptist because he was John the baptizer. What John was doing, he and Jesus were relatives, most people think cousins. John had been sent miraculously by God just ahead of Jesus' ministry, and John was a wild man. You could have easily made a tremendous reality show about John the Baptist. He had a strange diet, he dressed in camel's hair with a thick leather belt, and he went out in the desert and the crowds came to him, all kinds. Soldiers and religious people and the worst people in society who were the tax collectors. Nobody likes to pay their taxes, but in this day, a tax collector is a Jew who has made a deal with the conquering Roman imperial government to say this, I'll collect taxes from my countrymen, I just want to cut. They were hated. And everybody was going to listen to John. And man, John was a preacher. If we would have had John the Baptist preach here, I would sit like so many of you in the back and off center because I wouldn't have wanted eye contact. John was tough, boy. He said things like this. The one who is coming behind me is greater than I am, and when he comes, I won't be worthy to stoop down in the dirt and untie his sandals. I'm baptizing you with water, but he's going to baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. John was a revival preacher. He was a repentance preacher. He went back into his scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, which we want to teach you in this two-and-a-half-old testament seminar, and he drew the most violent graphic imagery from God's Word and said, Jesus is the one, and he's coming to clean house. He said things like this, he, the axe is already at the root of the tree. What's that mean? John knew what a mess his country was in, how depraved and wicked the world had become, and he said, when he gets here, when the one I'm telling you about comes here, he's going to make it all better. He was an astonishing preacher, which is why what happens in verse 19 is so surprising. The disciples of John reported all these things, all these miracles to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? That might be the most shocking question in the New Testament. John knew who he was. He had preached his heart out. He had said things that would get just about anybody else killed. Let me give you a taste of it. When people came to hear John preach, he said, you brood of vipers, who taught you to flee from the wrath to come? you imagine if I stepped up here on a Sunday morning and rather than saying welcome to Crosspoint, I said, well, you bunch of snakes? 
come to hide out from judgment, have you? The most polite among you would say, what, what time's this over anyway? Uh, I mean, John was tough. He was convinced. John was the one who baptized Jesus. See, baptism was an ancient symbol. When you were baptized by someone, that meant you accepted the message. You believed what you were being told. That's why the worst people, the tax collectors, were coming and being baptized and the self-righteous Pharisees stood on the bank watching because they didn't think they had anything to be sorry for. And now John, who had baptized Jesus because Jesus was doing what Jesus' life was all about, he was getting ready to take my place and yours. He had no need to be baptized because he had no sins of his own, but he entered fully into my experience and yours. He was going to be my substitute in every way, every thought, deed, action, and motive where I've blown it. Jesus faced it without sin, and His baptism signals the beginning of His ministry and the fact that He is going to be the Savior for anyone and everyone who will trust Him. And John was the one who actually put Jesus under the water, and John was present as Jesus walked out of the water, who saw the Holy Spirit just as John knew had to happen come down on Jesus visibly, and John the Baptist heard God the Father speak from heaven and say, this is my beloved Son. I am well pleased with Him. And now John sends people with this question, is it really you? Why? Because his expectations weren't being met. See, John was clear on the judgment. He was wrong on the timing. He knew Jesus could and will one day clean house. He just thought it would happen in his lifetime. There's apparently nothing that led him to believe that he would find himself where he actually does. Luke just barely mentions it. But of all the sins that a wicked man committed, the worst among them was this, he locked John up in prison. And now John is wondering what it's all about. And John the Baptist apparently is actually wondering, this great preacher is wondering if he has wasted his life. See, when I ask you, is Jesus meeting your expectations? That's an incredibly important question. And if you haven't had John's experience of doubt, there can only be one reason. It must mean that you've never suffered very deeply. Because what suffering does is it forces us to ask the hard questions. It presses us with doubt. And I want you to see how Jesus reacts. It's spectacular. Verse 20, when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues, and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. I want you to know what kind of Savior we're in relationship with. When you have doubts, he's not rattled. He wasn't offended. What did he do? He gave evidence. 
in that moment, in response to the question, he didn't answer, he didn't argue, he didn't say, well, that's disappointing. He just kept doing what he did. He kept doing things that only God could do as a sure witness that he truly was the Son of God who could get rid of sin and every evil thing in the world, and then his answer is packed with Scripture. Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Those are the Hebrew Scriptures. He's not troubled. He's not brokenhearted. He doesn't push back and tell them they have no right to such a question. He just gives them evidence and say, go back to prison and tell him what you saw today. Here's where it meets the road for us. We live in an age where because of the culture that is shot through literally from about kindergarten up with first a quiet, subtle message and then everything in the culture screaming louder and louder and louder, God is not real, the supernatural does not exist, all we have is flesh and blood and matter. People who grow up in that culture as we all are now, people who were soaked in that message at a certain point, triggered by suffering in their life, come to the frightening realization that maybe Jesus isn't who they expected. Because the churches are giving kind of a bad message sometimes. Sometimes we imply or directly tell people, if you come to Jesus, all your problems will be over. Jesus will make it all better. It's all going to be great from here if you only walk with Jesus. And we could take a quick poll. Since you met Jesus, have you found that it is absolutely free of suffering? No. Life continues to be hard. And you may not understand God's timing. You may not understand His plan. You may not understand what He's up to. That's what John is going through. And Jesus is not rattled. Jesus just offers evidence. And what we can do in His place in this church, in this community of faith, to use a wildly worn-out phrase, we want this to be a safe place for people who are asking hard questions. We want this to be a safe place for people who are exploring and doubting and wondering, because that's what Jesus does. He just answers, not with argument, not with disappointment. He answers with evidence. He just tells them, tell John what you've seen and heard today. Tell him what you witnessed. And Jesus is still giving evidence to any serious seeker. He still does, and this is a place where you can find answers. But it comes with a warning. Look at verse 23. Jesus says there's all kinds of evidence. Verse 23, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Catch this. Jesus isn't offended by doubt. He's patient and loving and good. Scripture tells me that God remembers that we are frail. He remembers our condition, that we're dust, that we're easily shaken, that we're easily disappointed. He's not. He's strong and good, and He welcomes the question. Too many Christians, and maybe you're right on the edge of it, or maybe your kids are already there, they asked a hard question and somebody in a church somewhere told them they had no right to ask such a thing. As a prominent atheist said, he was told in childhood, good boys don't ask those questions. And it turned his heart and mind off to any concept of God. 
This is not God willing by God's grace. This is not that place. Ask away. God himself has answers. But he does tell you the one who is going to be blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's not offended by your doubt. But ultimately, if you take offense at him and walk away from him, there's no relationship. See, that's how every relationship works. It only functions with trust. Every friendship, every working relationship, every dating relationship, every marriage, every bit of parenting, it all is built on trust. If there's not mutual trust, it's over. And God, who knows clearly who He is and knows who you are, He invites you. He welcomes doubters and skeptics and angry agnostics and people of all kinds to consider the evidence and then tells them, if you won't be offended by me, I have a blessing for you. But that's not the only people in the story. Look in verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Because this must have rattled the crowd. A lot of people in the crowd have been baptized by John. They heard the preaching months earlier. They understand. They believe. Now they're saying, "Uh uh-oh. The guy I baptized me is not sure about the one I'm listening to. What in the world is going on? So Jesus explains who John is. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? In other words, when you were going out to the desert to see John, what were you after? The scenery? Did you think maybe that John was a man who was easily shaken? That his convictions are moved around? Suffering makes him blow like a reed in the wind? Verse 25, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No, that wasn't John. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Understand what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who speaks to people about God. And Jesus said, you all came out into the desert to hear someone tell you about God. And yes, John was a prophet and he was more than that. Verse 27, this is he, John, of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. That's the last book in the Old Testament. Jesus is remembering his scriptures and saying, whenever you heard readings from the book of Malachi and we were told of a messenger who was coming ahead of the Son of God, that's me. And then he says something amazing in verse 28, and I want us to figure it out together. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now, let's be conversational for just a second. What did Jesus just tell you about John the Baptist? He's the greatest that ever lived. No one better than him. If you're a sports fan, it's one of the fun things about being a sports fan. There is a chronic argument about who the greatest at any position on a sports team is. You got Brady guys and Montana guys. And grown men will actually argue about this, right? Well, no, he had a better line. You know, my guy's better. He just didn't have the people around him. Well, Jesus, who knows what mankind is, and John says, 
knew what was in the heart of people, looks at John the Baptist and says, the man who's asking hard questions, the man who's doubting, he's exactly the messenger that Scripture promised, and never has a greater man walked the earth. Wow. High praise from Jesus, but it gets better for you and me. Look at the next sentence in verse 28. Yet the one who is in the least, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Okay, what did Jesus just tell you now? Two sentences in verse 28. John the Baptist, not a a greater man, has never been born. Then he says, yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. What does that mean? Well, now he's talking about you, believe it or not. See, what makes John such a fascinating and important figure is he's not only a prophet, he's a prophet with the greatest topic. Prophets were sent to talk to Israel about all kinds of things, but John only had one message, Jesus. Everything he said, the threatening, the insults, the sarcasm, the blessings, the conduct on how to live, it all centered around Jesus who was soon to come and soon to save. And yet Jesus says the smallest person, the least important person in the kingdom of God is greater than John himself. Why? And what does that have to do with you? John said, Jesus is saying that the smallest, weakest, most ignorant, just got into the family of God Christian is greater than John the Baptist. Because that's what Jesus can do for you. Jesus takes people of all kinds, and he takes unlikely believers, including these tax collectors, and completely transforms them from notorious, self-admitted, shame-ridden, guilt-stricken sinners, and makes them into sons and daughters of God, and welcomes them into, however you want to look at it, both things are true, welcomes them into God's family so that you may have God as your father, or welcomes them into the kingdom so that you may have God not only as your father, but also as your king. So much of our identity is wrapped up in our family of origin. Any counselor, any therapist worth his or her salt will always eventually and usually soon start talking to people about how they grew up and how they were treated by their mother or father. And the deepest wounds always come out of the family of origin. My dad wasn't there. My mother was cruel. My mother was absent. My father was violent. Jesus is the one who is going to open up access into the family of God. He is going to welcome you into the kingdom. And just think of it this way. When a king has a son, what do we call that kid? A prince. And when a king has a daughter? A princess. Your identity is better than that. Another time, I'll show you the dozens of things that the Bible says about those who trust Jesus as Savior. And it's not the attainment of religion. It's not, I finally figured it out and I did enough good stuff. It's that Jesus is going to die on the cross and completely remake people's identity. He's going to remake it so profoundly that Jesus himself called it being born again. Not getting better, not trying harder, but coming into a whole new family. So what's happening here? Well, here we have unlikely believers 
And the question is, do you understand what Jesus can do for you? See, if you're a disciple of Jesus, the questions are, can you really get your heart and mind around the fact that this is the new you? That Scripture was telling you the truth when it says that everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Not remodeled, not patched up, not slightly better. You're just an entirely new person. And if Christians, beginning with this one, the guy who's talking to you, if we ever could understand the blessing of our identity and start living up to it, what a blessing we would be. And then Jesus closes this sermon by turning to the audience and putting them at a crossroads. Look at verse 31. Jesus says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? Jesus is really clear. Sometimes the fact that He's speaking in the first century and it's being brought over into English makes it lose a little punch. Let me tell you what He's saying. Let me tell you what you're like. People tell you that. Do you ever, get, do you ever have somebody say that to you? Does it ever perk you up, make you pay attention? You know what you are? Oh, boy. <laughs> People never say that with a compliment to follow, right? You know what you are? You're the greatest. No, no, that usually doesn't follow. And it doesn't follow with Jesus either. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? And he says that they are, he tells a parable, what someone called the parable of the brats. He says they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. In other words, we played a happy tune and you weren't happy. We played a sad tune, you didn't cry. In other words, Jesus says, no matter what God does, you're not happy. Look, verse 33, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. In other words, the guy who came before me, he told you all about me, he was severe. He thundered out in the desert, and you said he's too strict. Any maniac who would live out in the desert and dress with camel's hair and a leather belt, that, that can't be God. He's demon-possessed. And then Jesus says, the Son of Man, he's referring to himself by a messianic title from the book of Daniel, written 600 years earlier. The Son of Man, in other words, I come eating and drinking. In other words, I'm the opposite of John. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Wow. Who's he talking to? Well, Luke says, when people heard this in the story, verse 29 and all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God was just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. There's two kinds of people in the crowd. The worst kind of people, they believe, their hearts are humble, they receive what God is doing. The rest of you, Jesus said, are like brats. God sends you John, and he's too strict. I come as promised, and I'm too happy. I'm too close. I'm too involved in the lives of what you consider the wrong kind of people. And he leaves them with this simple truth. Verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. 
What's that mean? We have an American saying, I think, that captures, catches what Jesus is trying to say. Maybe you've heard it. It was probably your grandma, but people still say sometimes the proof is in the pudding. You heard that? If it's real, if it's true, it shows. What Jesus is saying is he's putting all of us at a crossroads of sorts. There's a crossroad for every single one of us. And the crossroads is this. Are you going to keep trusting your own wisdom or are you going to start trusting Jesus? Will you trust his wisdom or insist on your own? The self-righteous people, think about what that word means. They are self-righteous. They, in other words, are righteous enough by themselves. They have no need of Jesus. That's why they wouldn't listen to John. That's why they won't listen to Jesus. The people who were humble enough, and there were Pharisees among them eventually, the people from all walks of life, self-assured, successful religious people, and the outcasts who were named separately, almost as if they were their own separate, guilt-stricken, nasty little group, they also will believe, and Jesus welcomes anybody who will trust His wisdom more than their own. C.S. Lewis understood this. If you're not familiar with Lewis, though probably you've seen at least a little bit of his work. C.S. Lewis was a brilliant writer and scholar at the University of Oxford in Cambridge a generation ago. He went from a skeptic to one of the most gifted, prolific, and entertaining exponents and defenders of the Christian faith, and he's most well-known, of course, for the Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe you've seen the movies. Just tell you the books are better. They always are. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, the central figure is a lion. It's a long parable that tells you the truth about Jesus. It tells you what C.S. Lewis had discovered. The central figure is a mighty lion named, some of you know, Aslan. And Lewis captures what Jesus is about, what this story is about, and this wonderful little piece from his writings. He writes, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is Jesus in Luke chapter 7. He's not safe. He's good. See, you don't want Jesus to be safe. You actually need Jesus to be dangerous. Because there really is evil in the world Sin really is ugly. It does work its way through all of life. It really does destroy everything and everyone it touches. And the final enemy that we're all fighting and worrying about is called death. And no one escapes it. The Bible says it is appointed for a man once to die and after this, the judgment. So you don't want Jesus to be safe. You want Him to be dangerous. Not to you, dangerous to sin dangerous to death. You want Jesus to be the kind of king 
The kind of lion in Lewis's imagery, which is drawn from the Old Testament, that can meet death and sin right where they are, meet them face to face, and destroy them underfoot to give you, in the place of death, himself eternal life. You don't want him to be safe. You need him to be dangerous so that you can be safe and you can be saved. And Jesus says at the end of this controversy, wisdom is always justified by her children. The proof really is in the pudding. Someday, I'm talking to all of you, Jesus says. I'm talking to the worst among you and the people who think they are the best among you. I'm telling you, wisdom will tell if you come and trust me. So here's, folks, what it means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus, you have to put him in charge of your expectations. I'll end where I started. In your relationship with Jesus, with all of its ups and downs, how's it going? If you're not satisfied with Him, I have good news. He is so patient, so loving, He's so good that He welcomes you to come back to Him as a doubter like John the Baptist did and say, Lord, I don't understand. Are you really the one who is good? Are you really the one who can save me? Or do I have to look somewhere else? If you feel like the worst person in this crowd, and you're the kind of person who many have told me, first time I came to church, I thought somebody will know what I'm really like and ask me to leave. If you're that kind of person, understand, Jesus is so close to you that He faced your same temptations, but He faced them without sin, and He can save you. The only person in this crowd, in this room this morning at 1030 in Huntington Beach is the person who insists on their own self-righteousness. You insist on saving yourself, there's nothing Jesus can do for you. He's willing, but you insist on having your own way. That's why Jesus leaves the story open, saying, this is wisdom speaking to you. The proof is in the pudding. Wisdom will be justified by her children, but now the decision is yours. So if you're doubting, welcome. We may not have all the answers at our fingertips, but Jesus actually does. I'm not trying to persuade you of the virtues of this church or the virtues of this person that's talking to you. All I'm doing is pointing to Jesus, telling you, He's good, He's loyal, He can save you. If you've moved into a place through your own suffering of doubt, Jesus welcomes you. He will show you again the evidence. If you're not sure of Him because you still want to hang on to your own way or you think this might be too good to be true and you're not sure He will receive you, if you will trust Him, He will. But if you're going to follow Him, you have to do the hardest thing in the world, and that was the dividing line in the crowd, to be humble enough to put Him in charge of your life and your expectations. Let's pray together, shall we? In the 9 a.m. service, we had at least one person publicly identify with Jesus. They said, I get it. I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. And I'm wondering if that's you. It's not up to me. I'm not on commission. There's no human pressure here for you. I'm just asking you a simple, direct question. Are you ready to trust Jesus with your sin? and ask Him to be your Savior. If you are, can I just invite you to call out to Him and say, Jesus, I understand.
I understand this much. I've sinned. You can save. Please save me. I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for what I've been. Take over. Take charge. Save me. He will. That's what he did for tax collectors, notorious sinners, and self-righteous Pharisees and legal experts alike. He did it for everyone who would humble themselves and trust him. Maybe that's you. If so, just talk to him in prayer. Tell him you're sorry for your sin. You want him to save you. He will. And all we ask in return is that you would fill out the card that's in your bulletin. Let us know that you've done that. We can help with those first steps in following Jesus because so many of us have been there. We can't save you, but we can show you the basics of how to walk with Him. We can show you what He's taught us just as He asked us to do. And maybe you know Him and you love Him, but you don't really understand Him right now. You're locked up in your own little prison of suffering, and Jesus isn't turning out who you thought He would be, or He's taking you into a place you do not like and did not expect. Could I invite you to talk to Him about it and put Him in charge of that situation as well? Lord, as people in this room deal with you, their doubts, their questions. I pray that you would take the believer who doubts and the person who has never truly trusted you, never really believed you. I pray that you would deal with each and every one according to their need and in a way, Lord, that would move them close to you some to be saved by you for the first time this morning. They will call themselves for the first time your disciples. They will become, by their simple trust in you, sons and daughters of God. I pray that you do that right now for them and that they would let us know so that we could join the celebration in heaven when another person in need of you, another sinner, comes home. Thank you, Lord. That's all any of us are. Thank you that you welcome all of us. I pray for the doubter. I know, Lord, there's people in this church that are being tested sorely by suffering, by pain, by deprivation, by illness, some who are facing death. Open their eyes again, Lord, to the glory of your person. Show them the evidence they once believed and let them, Lord, trust you and be blessed. As we turn now, Lord, to communion, we thank you for your death on the cross and your resurrection from the grave that you came to save and you will return to judge and make everything right. We do this in your honor and in your memory. In Jesus' name.